Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for your goodness and for your love and your grace and your mercy. And Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, uh, just amazing that you would preserve your word for us and that you would desire to speak to us at, at our innermost level, Lord. So please do that work in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44, marching through the Bible, find ourselves in Isaiah 44. Today, Lord, Lord willing, unless the rapture happens before eh, noonish, uh, we'll read 44, 45, 46, and uh, great chapters, great chapters. We've said before that many commentators... Uh, uh, say the second half of Isaiah really is written to, to primarily to encourage the captives in Babylon. And um, as a matter of review, uh, you recall that after King David came King Solomon, and after King Solomon came King Rehoboam. And during the reign of Rehoboam, the nation of Israel was divided in half. Well, it wasn't half, but basically the northern section and the southern section. Um, the northern section was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and they were all scattered. The southern uh, section, if you will, the southern nation of Judah was carried off to Babylon into captivity in 586 B.C., um, you don't need to worry about the dates, but anyway, uh, the people in Babylon, then the captives in Babylon were there for 70 years. Jeremiah prophesied they'd be there for 70 years. And after 70 years, they were going to come back. And um, by the Assyrians. And that was by, no, by the Babylonians, I'm sorry. Uh, so by the Babylonians, they're going to come back after 70 years in Babylon. And their release was going to happen when Babylon had them captured, but then the Medes and Persians overtook them um, by King Cyrus, which is a pretty amazing thing that we're going to read about today. And so I give you all that background just to, to tell you, if you're hanging out in Babylon and you've been there captive for 69 years, you might think, is God forgot about me? Right? And so these words would have been encouraging to those people. Now, also keep in mind, because these words were written even before they went to Babylon, but also keep in mind, we're not captives in Babylon, but we're sort of captives in our own little situations at times, right? We, st we, all, we all have our temptation to feel like, wow, does God notice my, my predicament, right? Does God care about my predicament? What's the answer? Yeah. Yes, he does very much. Very, very much, very much. And so um, really the application for, so that's the context for today. The application is that God gives us all the encouragement we need for whatever situation we find ourselves in, even if it's a consequence of our own doing. Can I tell you this? One of the things I've noticed over the years that kind of keeps people away from the Lord is their own self-condemnation, right? Like I'm not worthy of God's grace. I had somebody tell me this week, you know, I just feel like, you know, God is blessing this guy. He's, he's 
basically, frankly, he's he's <clears throat> kind of coming out of some consequences of some things that are all pretty self-inflicted. And God's blessing him. And he said, I feel like I don't deserve it. Right? Now, let me just encourage us. We all feel like that at times, but that should drive us to Jesus. shouldn't drive us away from Jesus. And that's the difference. And I think sometimes we, we drive away from Jesus just because we simply don't know. We don't know the goodness of God. We don't know the, the magnitude of His love and His grace and, and how amazing His grace is to each and every one of us. So that's why, you know, my heart here is to, is to communicate to us the heart of God. If we learn the heart of God, I don't have to yell at you about how to, how to serve Him. I'll never have to tell anybody how to serve God if I can communicate to them how good God is and how much God loves us. So, these words should be both comforting, encouraging, and exhorting, right? Because these, uh, when we're in these situations, um, it should drive us back to the Lord. So, chapter 44, verse 1. Yet hear me now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord, who made you and formed you from the womb who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. So I have to point out here, first of all, the end of chapter 43, again, there weren't, you know, chapter breaks in the original manuscripts, but the end of chapter 43 kind of ended with a little bit of a warnings of disobedience, some of that sort of thing. And so it's real, it's, it's, makes sense that he's going to follow that a little bit with, a, with some hope, and so he's doing that here. And I want you to notice here a little bit of the play on words. He says, hear me now, Jacob, my servant. Now, you recall the nation of Israel were all descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And Jacob, his name, remember when Jacob and his brother Esau were born, they were twins? And Esau came out first, and what was Jacob doing when he came out? Anybody remember? He was grabbing onto Esau's heel, right? Now, I don't know if at zero minutes of age he knew better, but anyway, he was grabbing onto Esau's heel. And so they named him Heel Catcher. And it turned out to fit with his life because he was sort of a schemer. He was a conniver. He was a manipulator. He, you know, he loved the Lord, but he was kind of had a way of working things. And so his name, Jacob, sort of meant heel catcher. Well, God later changed his name to Israel. Israel means governed by God, right? Is that cool? And so he said, and then there's another word that's, that's used in the scriptures, Jeshurun, which is a poetic name for Israel, meaning upright one. Okay. So now let's read that again. Yet hear me now, O schemer, my servant, and governed by God, whom I've chosen. Right? See, God takes us from our scheming, from our manipulating, from our self-sufficiency, and that work that He does in our lives brings us into submission to Him, right? Changes our hearts and makes us uh, people who can say we're governed by God. And just for repetition... Who formed you from the womb? He created us. He formed us from the womb. Oh, heel catcher, my servant, and you upright one whom I have chosen. You get that? 
So God takes us from where we are and creates us and, and forms us into who he wants us to be. Romans chapter 8 says that God conforms us into the image of his son, right? So sometimes we think this Christian life is all about, man, if I can learn how to do the right thing and do the right thing tomorrow and then do the right thing the next day, then, then you know, it's, it's kind of like I'm climbing a mountain and, you know, when I get to, uh, you know, biblical nirvana, I'm going to reach some point where I'm good, right? That's so off. <laughs> it's so off. Honestly, I've told you a million times before, that's how I grew up, right? Like, man, I want to try better. And, you know, like it's your baby step, you know, you, you, you know, whatever the, your thing is, right? Okay. Tomorrow I'm going to quit cussing, right? <laughs> Then the next day, I'm going to quit drinking. And when I get really good, I'm going to quit smoking. And when I get really good, I'm going to start, you know, focusing on the stuff I should do instead of the stuff I shouldn't be doing. And we think it's some kind of natural progression like that. You know what it is? It's God, first of all, doing a work in our hearts to conform us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And how it works is, as we surrender to God and say, do with me whatever you want, He makes us to be more like Jesus. Now we say, I'm not even close to Jesus, to being like Jesus. To which you'd look over to, to the person on your right or to your left, and they'd say, yeah, I know. <laughs> right? But you'd say, that's okay, because God is doing the work in my life. And I can't tell you how many times I had an opportunity this week to tell a person, to share this verse in Philippians chapter 1, I believe it's verse 8, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I can't tell you how many times as a guy that just is trying to offer biblical encouragement to people, how many times I say that to people. You know what? I know you're there, and I know you want to be there. And all I can say is, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And here's why I say that. Because if we can, we might not all say, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much like Jesus. But we can say, you know, I think he's doing a work in me. I think he's been doing a work in me. I think he's trying to get my attention. We can acknowledge him at that point. Well, if we can acknowledge him, acknowledge him at that point, then we're good saying, yeah, he's going to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's his work. It's his work. It's not my efforts or anything like that. It's his work. So he goes on, he says, for I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. This is so sweet. So God desires to pour water on him who is thirsty. Throughout the scripture, water is a picture of the Holy Spirit right? And what does God do? How does God conform us into the image of His Son? By His Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, Romans chapter 8, lives in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Now, do you feel that powerful today? Yeah, not really. <laughs> but He's there. Yeah. He's there. He's there. It's a reality. It's a reality. So he's doing that work, and he's able to do that work. And so it's like pouring water on a, thirsty, on a thirsty person or a flood on the dry ground. You know, Jesus said, blessed are you who th hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? 
and he satisfies that thirst in our lives. Notice also he says, I, uh, uh, I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Now, parents, if you've been a parent for a while, or you've been a parent for a while. So everybody knows that if you've been a parent for a while, you really worry about your kids when they're two, right? Because they might trip and fall and break their third finger or something like that, right? You really worry about them when they're two. And when they're six or seven or eight, they're a little more self-sufficient, so you don't worry about them as much. And by the time they're 18, 20, you don't worry about them anymore. Is that how it works, parents? Okay, by the time they're 30, they're so good, you can just let them go. They can, you know, the only thing you got to do now is have fellowship with them and enjoy the ride. Is that how it works? When do you quit worrying about them? Never. God knows that. So, by the way, kids, just put up with us because that's how it is. <laughs> that's the reality. <laughs> that's the reality. Well, I wish my mom and dad didn't worry so much about me. Well, they do. And I just kind of went through that little exercise so I could hear a few amens in the room. Yeah. yeah, so that the back row doesn't think it was just me, right? It's not just me or their mother, right? It's everybody, see? So, I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. What a, what a prayer we pray. And I'll tell you honestly, you know, I've had kids of all ages, and for sure I spend more, more brain space, more prayer time, it seems, as they get older. And that's just a reality. And so uh, God encourages us in that way. They will spring up among gra the grass like willows by the watercourses. So, you know, the Holy Spirit brings life like grass, like green grass, like the freshness of spring, like what we're experiencing now, like, you know, the, the flowers, the wildflowers, the blooming trees. Anybody notice the blooming trees on the way in? Okay, if you don't, you need to do it on the way out, right? That's for sure. Um, or I'll make you sit through an education on flowering trees in Indiana in April, which none of us want that. Verse 5, one will say, I am the Lord's, another will call himself by the name of Jacob, another will write with his hand the Lord's the name, and name himself by the name of Israel. Catch this. Please catch this. One will say, I am the Lord's. I am the Lord's. That means he owns me. Does he own you today? You bet he does. You bet he does. Do you recognize it? Do you appreciate it? Yeah. You know, honestly, if I can digest it down, in this life there's two kinds of people in the world. There's those that are, say, that are okay saying, I'm owned by the Lord. I am the Lord's. And there's the kind of person that wants to maintain their independence, their self-sufficiency, their own rightness, their own opinion, their own goodness, their own, their, own, their own attitude, their own whatever. And by golly, I'm going to dig my feet in the ground and be my own person. And really it comes down to, can we say, 
I am the Lord's. He owns me. And again, it's a little bit of an easier thing to swallow if we understand who this God is that we're talking about. And again, I don't need to beat you up and say, surrender to the Lord, surrender to the Lord, surrender to the Lord. I think it's a much, um, uh, makes a lot more sense to tell you who the Lord is. And then you decide. Number one, I can't make you do that. You have to decide that. But number two, he is just so amazing. He's so loving. He's so merciful. He's so gracious. He's so all of that that I don't understand who would not choose to follow him or surrender to him. And so that's who he is. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I'm the first and I'm the last. Besides me, there is no God. So we're going to learn about who this God is we're talking about. Who is this God we're going to talk about? If we're going to surrender ourselves to a God, he better be worthy, right? That, that's reasonable. Number one, he's the king of Israel, and he's king of us. He's the redeemer of Israel. He's the redeemer of us. And I like this. He's the first and the last. He says, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. You know, if I'm okay with who he is, he's the first, then again, he's also the last. What does that tell me? That he who began a good work in me will complete it right? Because he knows the beginning and the end. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. I'm living in the, in the middle there somewhere, right? In the scheme of eternity, in the scheme of eternal wisdom and, and understanding. You know, I know that I was created by him. I know that, you know, uh, he formed me. He saved me. He died for me. I know all of that, but yet there's still a little bit of unknown left in my life. But when he tells me I'm the beginning and the end, that it encouraged me, that encourages me that, you know what, he's holding my hand the whole way through. And I know that he's going to. So he says, that's the God we're talking about. He says, and who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show those to them. So he's saying, so who else can make these claims that I'm making, right? Who else can make the claims God makes? Nobody. But he's going to go into a little bit of, uh, I like it when God goes into um, a little divine sarcasm. He, I, I think of it as sort of an endorsement for when I want to be sarcastic. So he goes on, he says, do not fear, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. I think of it like God saying this, what do I know? I'm just God. <laughs> right? Is there anybody else that can uh, match me? I mean, what do I know? I'm just God. Of course not. Of course not. But he goes into now a little bit of a, uh, well, he takes it down to their level. And keep in mind, these Israelites, these people of Judah, they're going to go to Babylon as captives as a consequence of their sin. What was their, con- what was their sin that, that they're being uh, chastised for? Their sin was idol worship. Now, Every culture seems to have its thing that it deals with, right? Every individual has their things that you deal with. Again, we've said before, and and we'll kind of say it as we go through here, you may not struggle with idol worship, right, in the same way that they did, but they did. 
They did. And the principles still speak to us in terms of, of uh, the kinds of things that can get us into trouble. But in the, in the case of the Israelites, it was idol worship that got them in trouble. So God's going to talk about that a little bit. Verse 9, he says, those who make an image, all of them are useless. And by image, he means uh, an idol. And their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. And so, you know, the idol worshipers and the people that make the idols, uh, because they're man-made, the idols can't see or know anything, right? And so are the people that make them. They're not seeing or knowing, uh, and they're their own witness. Who would form a god or mold an image that profits him nothing? That's a great question. Who would form a god that profits him nothing? That's a great question. Surely all his companions would be ashamed, and the workmen, they're all mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. They, yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. And so, you know, everyone that makes these idols, ideally they should be ashamed because they're stupid, right? How stupid is it? To, well, we'll go through here. God, God explains it better than I do. Verse 12, the blacksmith. Let's say, for example, now we got a, we got a, a cast iron God we're going to make, okay? Well, how do you get a little cast iron God if you're a pagan idol worshiper? Anybody know? Does it rain out of the, does it rain cast iron gods like manna? You better hope it doesn't hit you on the head, right? No, you make one. Well, here's how it works. Well, the blacksmith with his tongs works one in the coals, right? And he fashions it with hammers. He's making a God with his tongs and his coals and his piece of cast iron, and he's hammering it, and he works it with the strength of his arms, right? And even as he's working it, he gets hungry, right? I love God's sarcasm. The blacksmith is making a god, and the blacksmith himself is getting hungry while he works on it because it's past lunchtime now. You know, if that's a god, it should just be able to spit out some manna back to the guy, Back to the blacksmith, he should be able to keep working, right? But it's not a god, is it? It's a piece of metal. It's a piece of metal. It's a piece of metal. You've heard me say before, sin makes you what? Stupid. Sin makes you stupid. Right? Is it stupid to beat on a piece of metal? that I create and then turn around and worship that thing? Yeah. Even if I get tired along the way and that thing can't satisfy my, my fatigue or my hunger? Is that weird? Sin makes you stupid. If you don't believe me, ask Samson, right? You've heard me say this before. It, to me, it's my go-to example, right? Samson and Delilah. You know the story of Samson and Delilah? Samson's got a, a, basically a wrong relationship with, with this woman named Delilah. She's in cahoots with the Philistines, the enemies of Samson. And um, she kind of snuggles with him, we'll say. And she says, hey, by the way, and Samson's, Samson's the kind of guy that can, you know, beat up a thousand men and kill them all with his bare hands, right? And she says, by the way, Samson, sweetheart, 
What makes you so strong? He says, well, tell you what, if you tied me with ropes, I'd be weak as any other man. Really? So she kind of lulls him to sleep, ties him with ropes, tells the Philistines to come out of the closet. She says, hey, Sam, the Philistines are upon you, right? He breaks those ropes, right? Because what was he doing? He was lying. He breaks those ropes, kills all the Philistines. Next night, Sam, you lied to me. Tell you what, if you braid my hair, I'll be as weak as any other man. Lulls him to sleep, braids his hair. Hey, Sam, the Philistines are upon you. Kills all the Philistines, right? I forget how many times this goes on. You're hoping it doesn't go on very more, many more times. Finally, Amen. <laughs> big churches have ushers for guys like that. Uh, finally, Sam, you, I'm not sure you love me, Sam. Well, if you cut my hair off, I'll be as weak as any other man. Sin makes you what? Stupid. Sin makes you stupid. Now, I can't grade levels of stupidity, but that's pretty high up there, right? I think also pretty high up there is taking a piece of cast iron and whacking it into a, a god and then worshiping it, right? So what I can say is I must be infinitely smarter and wiser than both Sam and that guy, right? Or could it be that both of them have human nature just like me, and we all have the same capacity for stupidity if we don't serve the Lord? So the craftsman, you know, so that's what the blacksmith does. Okay, maybe that's just the, God's given us all the sarcasm. He's, so maybe that's just what the blacksmith does. What about the, the woodworker? Because we know that woodworkers are more honorable than blacksmiths. The craftsman, he stretches, stretches out his rule. He marks one with a, uh, with a chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with a compass, and he makes it like a figure of a man according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. And so what about maybe that guy, right? You know, he's, he's doing all the right things. Interestingly, you know, he's making his God according to the beauty of a man. Notice, you know, if... if you can never make a God that's greater than yourself. And so a man who makes a God can make it no more beautiful than a man, right? Or a human. And so, uh, you know, that's its own sort of stupidity. But it's a type of, it's a type of self-worship if I'm making a God that's like a man because I'm a man. So anyway, that gets pretty circular pretty quick. He cuts down cedars for himself. And takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he shall take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it with a fire. With the half he eats meat. He roasts the roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. His carved image, he falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. 
So God's saying, all right, how stupid is this? He takes a tree, he cuts down the tree, with part of the tree he warms himself, part of the tree he cooks his food, and part of the tree he builds a god. Is that stupid? That's stupid. That's stupid. And then he says, deliver me for you are my God. That's crazy. They do not know nor understand for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. This is a pivotal verse to me. Please catch this. They, I believe, refers to the idol worshiper, not the idol. He says, they do not know or understand. I mean, obviously, the false idol that's sitting on your fireplace mantle does not know or understand. But here God says, he has shut their eyes so they cannot see. Well, the idol never had eyes that he could see with. And their hearts so they cannot understand. Well, the, the idol never had a heart that he could understand with. So we're talking about the idol worshiper, the idol maker, the, the blacksmith, the craftsman, uh, that person. But I, know, I want you to notice this. Because we think... Honestly, I read, I read about Samson and I think, man, that guy is an idiot. I would never fall for that trap. I read about a, a, the blacksmith or the craftsman that's making an idol, uh, and I think, that guy's an idiot. I would never fall for that trap. But see what, I think we have some insight here where God says, he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot understand. God makes them that way. Yeah. Now that should concern us. Because that means if God made them that way, God can make human beings today that way. Could it be that there are human beings today on planet earth that don't follow the Lord that are deceived? Ever met one? Yes. And does the deceived person say, you know, I'm not so sure if I'm right or wrong. You ever had a a wishy-washy deceived person? No, man, I am right. Just like Proverbs says, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes. Right? And so I think of it like this. In the same way the Bible talks about knowledge and wisdom, we'll go to the right on knowledge and wisdom. Okay, we'll go to the left on no political uh, references. But we'll go to the right on knowledge and wisdom. There's knowledge, right? We're reading the Bible, we're gleaning knowledge by reading the Bible. Fair enough? We learn, we study history, we study the historical context, we, you know, we kind of dissect with knowledge, but if that was as far as it gets, we'd be lacking big time, right? There's wisdom that is beyond knowledge. There's wisdom that is like, tells us what to do with that knowledge, right? They came to Jesus and they said, hey, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus says, well, uh, give me a denarius whose inscription is on it. Well, Caesar's. Did Jesus not know what was on that denarius? No, he knew. But it was wisdom that says things like, well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to, God's what is, give to God what is God's. You know, he, he, could, he could silence the critic with wisdom. So there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. I think also on the other side, there's a difference between stupidity and uh, sort of being deceived. Does that make sense? It's almost like it's a supernatural level of stupidity. Just like wisdom is a supernatural level of understanding, right? Because James tells us, if anybody lacks wisdom, go to school, 
spend a lot of money, and get a degree in wisdom. Is that what James says? No. No. He says, ask for it. Ask God who gives it liberally. It's a supernatural gift from God. Well, I think there's also, if we're not careful and if we're not surrendered to the Lord, there can be sort of a almost, and I have to be careful because I don't want to be, I, I can't judge. I'm, I'm looking at myself as I'm saying this. Okay, so please let's all look at ourselves, right? Because right now we're thinking about that deceived person that is so clueless that we've met because we all said we met one, right? So don't think about that guy. Think about us. I think there's a, there's a potentially a supernatural uh, stupidity, just like there's a supernatural understanding that could be given by God. Does that make sense? And I think we need to be careful about it. Now, does God bless us and does God grow us and does God conform us into the image of his son? Yes. But if we choose to walk outside of the wisdom of God, and if we choose to serve ourselves, and if we choose to walk according to our own understanding, then I think we are at risk of being like Samson or like the guy that makes his own cast iron God. Because God tells us here, that's what he did to them. And so we need to be very, I think, not paranoid. Please, I don't want us to be paranoid. But I think we need to be very mindful that um, we need to ask the Lord for wisdom. And I think we need to also be very compassionate. You know, and this speaks to our, to our uh, culture today. What's our first? We're enlightened Christians, right? I mean, we know the Scriptures. We know the Lord. We have the Holy Spirit in us. We know right from wrong, good from evil, all those things. So we meet a deceived person who's convinced that they're right. And how are we going to persuade that person to be right? Well, we're going to yell at them, beat them up, knock some sense into them. That never, works. never works, right? Can I encourage us to have some compassion for that person? Can I encourage us to be gracious with that person? Can I encourage us to pray for that person? Because only God can give that person wisdom, the kind of wisdom that they need, right? And self-sufficiency is going to continue to lead them down that deceived path. And honestly, whether or not we yell louder or, or, or fight harder or anything like that is probably not going to do a whole lot. And so it's a work of the Lord. Verse 19, no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I've also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I, not, shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? So he's just kind of reflecting on this guy that cuts the tree down and warms himself with, with part of it, cooks with part of it, makes an idol out of part of it. He feeds on ashes. <laughs> a deceived heart has turned him aside. A deceived heart has turned him aside. And he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? A deceived heart is a very dangerous thing. We need to make sure we don't have one. We need, and I believe God answers the prayer for wisdom. Uh, James tells us, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives it. And so, you know, we don't need to, you know, worry about walking around on our tiptoes because we don't want to have a deceived heart. But let me just tell you, it's a possible reality, and uh, we don't need to be paranoid about it. We just turn to the Lord, and He gives us wisdom. 
Verse 21, remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions, and like a cloud your sins return to me, for I have redeemed you. And so, you know, the alternative of any kind of idol, idol worship in any form, whether it's the way they did it or the way we tend to do it, is to remember God is to remember God, turn our attention back to God. You know, God made us. God redeemed us from sin. God blotted out our sins. We have lots of reasons to serve God, to serve God. But we have to be careful. Just like they had their idols, we can have our idols, even if they're not the little man-made statues. We all have our own little thing. It can be a relationship. It can be a possession. It can be uh, an ideology. It can be anything. But we all can have our own little idols if we're not very careful. Sing, O heavens, verse 23, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. So I love this. The response when God does give us wisdom, the response when God does um, reveal to us who he is and that we surrender to him, it should cause us to sing. Like sing with the heavens. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. As God conforms us into the image of his son, as he makes us more like Jesus, as he's on that process of he who began a good work will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Along the way, we should sing. We should celebrate. We should be thankful people. You've heard me say before, there should be no, there should be no such thing as a pouty Christian or whiny Christian. Now, I get that we all have issues. I can be pouty and whiny just as much as anybody, for sure. But we should be thankful, joyful people, because we know who saved us. Verse 24, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad, who turns the wise men backward, who makes and makes their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. And so, you know, God declares himself here. He says, you know, here's who I am. You know, we said we got to be careful. You know, if we're going to surrender to a God, we got to know who he is. Here he is. He's the Redeemer. He's the one who formed us from the womb. He's the one who makes all things and stretches out the heaven alone, who spreads abroad the earth by himself. God's the creator, period. You know, I had a guy one time not, not too long ago that I was sharing with, and this guy's not a believer, and he's pretty unashamed about that. But we were able to have a, we were able to have a gracious dialogue. And he said, you know, I grew up, I forget, some denomination. I grew up, you know, my, my mother was a Christian and all that. And he said, and, I, and when I sort of came of age, I said I'd open up the Bible and kind of look at it for myself. This guy was just being honest. And he said, I couldn't get past the first page, right? Now, to that guy, I would say, you know what, that's, on, that's more honest than a lot of people. 
He said, I couldn't get past the first page. What's the first page? It says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the verse. And he says, matter of fact, I couldn't get past the first verse. And I said, I'm, I know you can't. Because if you could, you'd be a believer. If we can accept, and why is there so much attack on that part? Because if you take that part away, you have undermined the whole Bible. You have undermined the whole Bible. Because we think that the creation is just in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, right? Well, guess you got to take out Isaiah 44, right? Because it says that he formed us from the womb. He makes all things. He stretches out the heavens all alone. He spreads abroad the earth by himself. We've got to take out Isaiah 44. We've got to take out a bazillion psalms. We've got to take out the book of Colossians. We've got to take out the gospel of John. Pretty much got to take out the whole Bible, right? And you've got to say, well, and what you're left with is, well, I think I'm a pretty good person. <laughs> yeah, that's all you got, right? But how about the other? How about if we, unlike that guy, could accept that God is our creator. And it's a whole other story, but let me just tell you, I've, I've studied this, and I can tell you, it's, it's an honest, reasonable approach to our origins. And the Scripture, the validity of the Scripture itself so confirms itself that there's really no logical way around it. Unless, of course, you're deceived, right? right? If you want to walk away from the Lord, and a part of that process leads you to a place of deception, then yeah, the, uh, the Genesis account makes no sense. If you want to surrender to the Lord and ask Him for wisdom, there are scientifically, logically, way, logical ways to come to that conclusion. But anyway, all this to say, God says he formed us. That's the God we're talking about. He confirms the word of his servant. He performs his counsel of his messengers. And again, I said this is going to be, this was written to those that would be in Babylon, captive. He says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. And to the cities, you shall be built. So he's encouraging these people, you know what? You're going to come back home. You're going to come out of captivity one day, and you're going to come back home to Jerusalem to be inhabited and to the cities of Judah to be rebuilt. And that would be tremendously encouraging to them. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform my pleasure, all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So the temple was destroyed in 586 BC when the Babylonians took him out. And so what God is saying through the mouth of Isaiah here to those captives, hey, there's going to be a guy named Cyrus, and he's going to come, and he's going to send you back, and he's going to allow Jerusalem to be rebuilt. Not only Jerusalem, he's going to, be, he's going to allow the, temp, the temple foundation to be laid, and the temple's going to be rebuilt. Is that crazy or what? Here's what's crazier. This prophecy was written about 200 years before Cyrus was born. This was written 200 years before Cyrus was born. Cyrus, he's mentioned by name. This was written before they even went to Babylon, before Cyrus was even born. It wouldn't have been on, even, on their radar at the time it was written. And what's interesting is, this is so specific that this and other verses, you know, I've, we've talked about the, uh, the book of Isaiah is sort of 
got two parts. There's the chapters 1 through 40, and, or 1 through 39, and then there's 40 to 66. And many people say, many experts say that uh, chapter 40 through 66 was not written by Isaiah. Had to have been written by some other guy that came after Isaiah. Because we know that during the time of Isaiah's life, and we can track that from other scriptures, we know that during the time of Isaiah's life, Cyrus wouldn't have been on anybody's radar. So how would Isaiah have known about Cyrus? It's impossible that he would have known Cyrus by name and that Cyrus was going to be the guy that fulfills this prophecy. And, and so therefore, somebody had to write it after the time of Cyrus. Do you, ever, do you have to explain? Do you have to try that hard to explain away the Bible? There's an old story Chuck Smith tells, and I've heard him tell it, and I've heard people talk about Chuck Smith telling it, so maybe I'll be another guy that talks about Chuck Smith telling it. But years ago, uh, he, was on a, uh, he was on a radio interview show with some guy, and they, you know, they have you know, the radio, the interviewer has two different uh, opinions you know, represented by these two different guys, and anyway, they're, somehow they're talking about, you know, a right interpretation of Scripture versus a loose interpretation of Scripture and all that. And anyway, and somewhere along the line, oh, and, and it was a telephone interview. So Chuck tells the story. He's on the phone, and he's hearing this guy over on speakerphone being interviewed by the, the same guy that's interviewing him. And, and this guy says, well, you know, the book of Isaiah was written by two, two different people, at least two different people, because you know that Isaiah didn't write the second half. And Chuck says, well, that's curious because Jesus quoted from both halves of the book of Isaiah, and he attributed those both halves to Isaiah. And Chuck says, are you smarter than Jesus? And the guy says, well, yeah. Chuck says, I hung up. He said, what can I say to somebody that's smarter than Jesus? Right? See, if you take this to its logical extreme, you've got you to come to a point where you're saying something as crazy as, yeah, I think I know more about this whole thing than Jesus. Right? Don't try to undermine the Bible. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You've got to take it so far out that it's crazy. But anyway, so let's just go out on a limb and say uh, Isaiah had a prophetic word from the Lord. Anybody okay with that? Yeah. And that he can write about a guy named Cyrus that he never met. And he's not ever going to meet. So he can write about Cyrus, and he can say that Cyrus is going to let him uh, go back to Jerusalem and build the temple and, and all of that. But you're saying, mm, I don't know if I believe that story. Okay, so turn back to the left. Go before uh, Psalms, Nehemiah, Job, and if you come back there, you get to Ezra, the book of Ezra. I just thought it'd be worthwhile to read this specifically because Isaiah talks about <clears throat> talks about it. Ezra chapter one. It says now in the first year of Cyrus, Cyrus being the guy that was prophesied about by Isaiah two hundred years before he was born. Now, the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation again, uh, throughout all his kingdom, and also put in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. 
Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build a house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of the place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things besides all that was willingly offered. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Midrith, Mithridath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. So you can turn back to Isaiah. So what happened? The Babylonians conquer the Israelites, the nation of Judah. Cyrus, the Medes and the Persians, then conquer the Babylonians, and they've sort of inherited these captive people. Well, they've inherited lots of captive people because they've, inherited lot, because they've conquered lots of nations. But you can imagine, we've, learned, we've talked enough about the history of the ancient world how, how normal would it be for an enemy nation to come in and conquer Babylon and inherit all of its captives and say, and the king says, tell you what, fellas, whoever wants to go back to Jerusalem, build a temple, just go, whatever. And ask your neighbors, whoever's got gold and silver um, to give him, to go with them. And oh, by the way, why don't we just liquidate the national treasury of all the, uh, the plunder that the Babylonians took in the first place and send it back? How normal does that sound? Not at all. Not at all. But it says that God moved on his heart. God moved on his heart. So it goes into chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and to loose the armor of kings, to open him before the double door so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by name, am the God of Israel." So historians say that Cyrus basically came in and took Babylon pretty much easy, pretty much a piece of cake. We know from the Daniel account that Belshazzar, the king in charge at that time, he's drunk, right? Now, anybody ever had a fight with a drunk? Never mind, I probably won't ask that. But can you imagine? Anybody ever in a bar fight? Um, you imagine you're like this warrior nation, Right? that's got some strength in its own right, and you're going to come in and your enemy, the guy that you're trying to overthrow, is drunk, right? It's going to be a pretty easy fight. And so what happened? God just, God says, basically, I made the crooked places straight. I, you know, I'm going to open the doors. I'm going to open the doors for you to just come in and take over Babylon. And that's exactly what happened. I'm going to give you the treasures of darkness that they, that they took. So, you know, you get all their, you know, you get their, their kingdom, you get their captives, and you get all their stuff. And so it was a good deal for Cyrus. He's just an instrument of God. By the way, it's a good deal to be an instrument of God. It's a real good deal to be an instrument of God. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. 
I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you though you have not known me. So this is speaking uh, to Cyrus. He wants Cyrus to know that he is God and that he's bringing these people back and he's given Cyrus all this favor for the sake of Israel, not necessarily uh, for the sake of Cyrus's great wisdom or holiness or anything like that. That they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. God is still trying to convince these Israelites that he's God. It is a recurrent theme. He's telling them there is no God, none besides me. I'm the Lord, there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Rain down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. So God wants Cyrus, and he wants Israelites to know that he's in control. God wants us today to know that he's in control. Woe to him who strives with his maker. You know, and I underline that. Woe to him who strives with his maker. What's the point of today? What have I been saying today for the last however many minutes? We can either submit to God or we can strive with God, Right? Striving with God, sometimes I'll, I'll cut us a little slack because we've all tried it at various times, right? And striving with God kind of feels like I'm protecting myself, my own instincts, my own human nature. I'm, I'm me. I can't like just cave to surrender my will, my identity, my everything to God. But he says... Woe to him who strives with his maker. And let me just tell you, as a guy who's tried both, it's way easier to surrender to your maker than to strive with him. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherds strive, uh, strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Does the clay talk back to the potter? Paul talks about this in Romans. Does the clay talk back to the potter and say, you know, you should have made me a coffee cup instead of a plant stand. No. Clay doesn't say, what are you making? Or shall the handiwork say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? So a newborn baby comes out and says, hey, what were you doing? What were you thinking? Right? No. There's parents and children. Right? There's God and us. There's a potter, and there's clay, right? And woe to him who strives with that understanding, because God is God, and we are not. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his maker, ask me of things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands, you command me. I've made the earth and created man on it. Do you see this recurrent theme of creation? God is the creator. God is the creator. And we would do well not to strive with that. I mean, don't get me wrong. Study it. Learn it. All that. Go to the museum. Learn it. But then don't strive with it. Don't strive with it. And I believe with all my heart. Let me just back up for a second. I believe with all my heart that a child of God 
who asks the Lord for wisdom, James chapter 1, who is intellectually honest and open to the voice of the Lord and to his wisdom and studies the various arguments and studies them thoroughly without a lot of propaganda on either side, I believe that person can very easily accept the biblical account of creation. Very easily. And I think when we, as the body of Christ, we sell ourselves out uh, oftentimes because we want to kind of cave to the wisdom of the world because, frankly, we're intimidated by them. And we put too much stock in them. And we don't realize that they're deceived until today. Now you know that. And so we want to kind of have this sort of hybrid, like I'm a child of God, but, you know, it's obvious that the earth is millions of years old. And so I just, I want to figure out a way to blend those. And let me just tell you, you can't blend them. You cannot blend them. And that's for another discussion. All right, that's for another discussion. I'm tempted, but I won't. That's for another discussion. But you cannot blend them. You cannot blend them. Either the Bible, and here's where I think it is super critical. When you try to blend them, number one, you've attacked the character of God. And number two, you've attacked his word. When you attack his word, you're trying to make that, you just can't buy that six-day thing. And so you gotta, you got to do some crazy gymnastics with the language and, and come up with some stuff to make those days be millions of years. And, and you've got to do some crazy stuff. You know what you're doing? You're undermining his word. And then when he says here, you know, I am God, there is no other. I'm the one that created you, and you ought to, you ought to stop striving with your maker. And if we, you know, but when we try to, you know, I don't know if he really is God, the maker, the way he's talking about, and maybe he's kind of, you know, then you're attacking his character. Can I tell you this? When Satan came to Eve in the garden, you, many of you have heard me say this before. When Satan came to Eve in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, he did two things. Number one, he attacked God's word. Hey, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from any tree? Did God really say that? He cast doubt on God's word, right? Like maybe God, you know, it made Eve say, you know, maybe he kind of, maybe, I don't know if he meant that or, you know, did God really say that? What's happened to the word of God today by our modern wisdom? We can't even call Isaiah a prophet. Give me a break. Because he knew who Cyrus was, right? God's word has been undermined, right? And then what's the other thing God's... What's, so Eve says, Eve gives him a song and dance answer to that one. And then what his next, next statement is, he says, you know what? You're not going to surely die if you eat that. God knows that in the day you eat of it, you're going to be like him, knowing good and evil. God's trying to spoil your fun. What did he do? He attacked God's word. He attacked God's character. When we try to undermine the creation account, 
What do we do? We undermine God's word. We undermine God's character. And if we're going to be people who don't want to strive with our maker, because woe to him who strives with his maker, I think, honestly, we've got to get our heads around the, the creation account. So anyway, he said, I've made the earth. I've created man on it. I stretched out the heavens. You know, if I'm okay with Genesis chapter 1 and 2, I'm okay with all this. I'm okay with Isaiah 44 or 45. You know, I've raised him up in righteousness. I've, I've done all this. God says, I've done all that. That's okay. Verse 14, he says, Thus says the Lord God, the Lord, the labor of Egypt, merchandise of Cush, and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you, and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come over in chains, and they shall bow down to you, and, I will, and they will make supplication to you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there's no other. There's no other God. Truly you are God who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. They shall be ashamed, also disgraced, all of them. They shall go in confusion together, who are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting lasting salvation, you shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. And so this is a reference to, you know, the time of Cyrus. Cyrus, again, you know, he conquered Babylon, but he also conquered these other nations. And so they're all part of the Medo-Persian Empire. And now they're all kind of acknowledging uh, that Cyrus is favorable to the God of the Jews. And so that's kind of the near fulfillment. The far fulfillment is that um, in the millennial kingdom, everybody's going to serve uh, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Verse 18, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens. Can we get our heads around the creation? Boy, you'd have a hard time with this chapter if you couldn't do that, right? For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. And so, you know, because God is God, he's the undisputed creator, he deserves to be worshiped. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together. You who have escaped from the nations, they, are, have, they have no knowledge. Who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save? Tell and bring forth your, your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have, I not, have not I the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. So do we get the idea here? I mean, he's repeating himself, right? He's our creator. There's no other God beside him. He's the one. Don't strive with him. When we try all of that stuff, we, we get all messed up. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. <clears throat> the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. We see this Philippians chapter 2. Right? Paul tells us that one day every knee will bow that's ever existed on planet earth. And every tongue will confess that what? Jesus Christ is Lord. Can you imagine the chorus of that? Can you imagine? Can you imagine listening to every scoffer as well as every worshiper of Jesus Christ Every knee bowed and every tongue confessing, Jesus Christ is Lord. That's going to be a beautiful sight. That's going to be a beautiful sight.
He shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength to him. Men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. And so it'll be a great thing to acknowledge God together. Chapter 46, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle, your carriages were heavily wooded, a burden to the weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, they could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. So Bel and Nebo, chapter 46 I like because it kind of brings these whole things, all these things together, but Bel and Nebo were pagan gods in Babylon. And uh, the irony is the Israelites worshiped uh, idols, so God took them to a place that was like... Uh, you know, a metropolis for idol worship. And so, you know, Bel and Nebo, they're going to bow down. They're going to they're worship God and, uh, because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. So again, we see this idea that God carries us through life personally. God's conforming us into the image of his son. God is be- who began a good work in us will complete it. He's going to do it even into our old age, even into our gray hairs. He's going to bear our burdens. To whom will you liken me and make me equal or comp- and compare me that we should be alike? So again, he's, going, he's kind of bringing it back around. They lavish gold out of the bag. They weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith, and he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder. They carry it. They set it in its place. It stands from its place. Shall, it shall not move. Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer, nor save him out of his trouble. So again, no false god can be likened to God. Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. This bird of prey, many people believe, is a reference to Cyrus specifically. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I will do it. So, you know, because God is God, because there's none like him, because he's the creator from the beginning to the end, and if we're okay with that, we're not striving with him, we can trust him to be our finisher, right? And he says, I will do it. I love that. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, who are far from righteousness. I will bring righteous, my righteousness near it, my, my, I will bring my righteousness near, it shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Isn't that a cool chapter? So, we all have false idols in some way or another at times that we're tempted to worship, right? They can't see or hear or do anything like that. They're stupid. And if we worship them, we're stupid right? There's no good way to put it other than that. Only God created the universe. Only God created us. Only God has the grace to save us. And because of that, we should respond with submission. Don't strive with God. Can I tell you something? You know, Jacob strived with God. Actually, when God named him Israel, it was after he, he wrestled with, um, well, 
Jesus came. God came in the form of a man, right? It says he wrestled with Jacob all night long, right? Some of us wrestle with God. Some of us wrestle with God. God will say, you know, I want you to do this. And we'll say, God, can I kind of do that? Or can I do that, like, next time? Or can, can somebody else do that? Right? We don't really, because we're believers, right? We're, and we're in church, right? We don't say, we don't thumb our noses at God and say, no! Right? Well, I hope we don't. But we, kind of, we do kind of say, you know, God, I'd really kind of like to do it my way, if that's okay. He who began a good work in us will complete it. He conforms us into the image of His Son. He wants us to surrender to Him because that's where the blessing is. He's not trying to spoil our fun. It's not like, it's not like all the fun is over here and He's just trying to keep it from us. He wants to bless us. He wants to protect us. He wants to encourage us. He wants us to know that just like He created the world and the universe and everything, He wants to take care of us. He's so good to us. He's so good to us. Please, 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 don't ever leave here without knowing how good God is, how loving He is, how gracious He is, regardless of what we've been through, regardless of what we're in right now. But what He does tell us is don't strive with Him. Jacob wrestled all night. All he got was worn out and a, and a displaced hip. That's all he got out of the deal. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you. Thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. Thank you that you take care of us. And Lord, we all have needs. We all have challenges. We all have circumstances. And Lord, how comforting and reassuring it is to know that you're carrying us through those things. So please have your way with us, Lord. Even, Lord, I would ask today for myself and for all of us, that if, our, if there are those ways that we maybe even a little bit are striving with you and we don't even recognize it, Lord, would you please, in your amazingly gracious way, would you please reveal those things to us so that we can surrender to you more, more wholeheartedly and that you can do that work in us that you began. So, Lord, thanks for your goodness. Have your way with us now, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.